The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Well, good, good evening, everybody. Um, I, uh, I love the, the line in that song. Because of the blood of Christ, we don't have to fear our banishment from God. Um, that dovetails really well with what Scott preached on this morning. Um, we have... Uh, th- there is, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's actually what we're going to talk about for a moment tonight. If you would, turn, uh, turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We'll be in the first, the first few verses there. Um, and as you're, as you're uh, getting there, uh, I'll, I'll let you all know something that I learned today. You know, they, they say you learn something new every day. Well, what I have learned is that your pastor has a very oddly shaped head. Trying to get this thing to fit. Golly, and y'all can tell him I said that. Or maybe it's just my head that's uh, this oddly shaped. Either way, it's not really of any consequence. Romans 8, chapter 1, uh, uh, chapter 8, verse 1 through 11. Uh, read with me. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Verse 3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of our sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin In the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Let's pray. God, we are once again confronted with your word. Your word is... Powerful. It is living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword, Lord. And I pray that tonight your word would, as you promised, accomplish your purposes. That it would divide us, God. That it would uh, separate what is ordinate from what is inordinate. That it would separate what uh, needs to be from what needs to be removed. And that we would be ever Submitted to your word as a slave. I pray these things in your name. Amen. It's a wonderful passage. Uh, many of you have, have uh, heard this passage, meditated on it, I, I hope, and, and heard perhaps many sermons. Romans chapter 8 is a, is a uh, favorite uh, from which to preach, especially verse 1. A great truth we find here that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Uh, we're definitely going to touch on this tonight. However, it's not going to be the focal point. What I would like for us to uh, take a moment to uh, consider is the life of the mind of the believer. There are some very important statements made in here uh, about what our, our mind should be. How we, people who are walking in the flesh, should, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, walking in the spirit, our minds are to be set on the Spirit. Well, what does this mean practically? That's, that's what we're going to talk about tonight. And I would posit to you that the mind of the believer is, is somewhat a two-edged sword. It is both a crucial part of the Christian life. Unfortunately, it is also perhaps the most neglected part of the, of the Christian life. You understand, our society sees us. Christians as uh, know-nothings, head-in-the-sand, simpletons, because we have the audacity to believe in a book called the Bible. We have not exactly uh, done as good a job as we perhaps could in, in learning exactly what we believe and exactly how to defend these things, but however, I believe that passages like these are a call to us, They beckon us, come, engage your mind upon the scriptures. This truth that, that, the, that the mind is both a crucial part and most neglected part of the Christian life is evidenced in many ways. First off, note, note what Paul says here. He's making all of these statements. He's saying that there are people who walk in the flesh. There are lost people. There are people who walk in the spirit. There are saved people. Um, and what does he use as the, uh, as the evidence? The mind. He uses the mind of the, uh, of the person. What does this person set their thoughts on? What do they constantly meditate on? Where, where do their minds turn? Well, if you look at a person's thoughts, meditations of his heart, perhaps you can get a glimpse into what he is, where he stands with God. This is... Crucial for us to, to understand in the middle of this long statement on what it means to walk in the, in the spirit or to walk in the flesh, we have this, uh, this statement about the mind. We also see that perhaps the mind is the most neglected part of our, of our Christian lives and in a couple of ways. And I'll, I'll give you a, uh, one or two examples. The first one is the lies that Christians believe. You understand that, there, that, that, that we in the church, we have our own little set of lies that we believe. You know, we, we like to say, you know, the, the world is believing all kinds of lies. And that's true. But I would contend that perhaps us saved folk, we just kind of have a, a different set of lies that we, that we buy into. Here's a couple. You've heard these. Maybe people wouldn't say them out loud. Some would. I can live any way I want. And be okay with God. That's a lie people believe. I can live any kind of licentious lifestyle. I can go headlong into my sin. I can uh, be this or that or the other. I can do these things. And me and God are perfectly okay. Here's another one. I can be just 
as good of a Christian away from church. Don't have to regularly attend any any sort of, uh, you know, gathering of Christians and I can be just as good of a Christian. Well, I, I would respond to that and say that you can either be a habitual church absentee. Or you can be a very or you can be a, a committed Christian, but you can't be good at both. You can either be good at one or the other. And of course, many are not able to come to church, but however, uh, those who are, we understand that, that God has set up this institution called the church, and He has given us one another, and it is one another uh, who sharpen us. It's the reason that we gather. We just don't gather just to have a big hoorah for Jesus every Sunday. We gather because you have something that perhaps I don't. And I have something that maybe you don't. And we can sharpen one another as iron sharpens iron. Perhaps uh, our uh, reaction when the, uh, when the Mormons come to the door. Or our reaction when the Jehovah's Witnesses come to the door. I was... Talking to somebody, we were kind of joking around, and guys, I'll be honest with you, I'm, I'm guilty of this. It's really easy for me to, to, when a Jehovah's Witness comes to the door, to, you know, say, hey, you know what? You're in a cult. Get off my property and slam the door. Well, it's a whole lot more harder is to engage our minds and to learn exactly what they believe and to learn maybe how we can best relate the gospel to them. I think that perhaps in many ways we have taken the easy way out. Another way that we see that that the mind is so often neglected is in our scripture memory. And I'm not trying to give you some kind of legalistic list of things you must do. If you do A, B, and C, then you're going to have the mind of Christ. But what I'm saying is these things are indicative uh, of our minds and of of our hearts. I could probably, if, if everyone was honest, and if I were to ask everyone uh, who has committed a, a, one of Paul's epistles in, in its entirety to memory, I could probably count the number of people in this room on one hand and have three or four fingers left in change. However, all of these things that I have just mentioned could be remedied quickly if we would consider God's Word as more precious than our television. If we would consider God's Word to be more precious, if we would engage our minds and say, you know what, I don't want to just be a heart Christian, I want to be a mind Christian. I want to engage my, my mind and maybe decide that this law and order marathon is not quite as valuable as digging into God's Word today. And you understand I'm preaching to myself. God only knows how the church could, be, could how great of a warrior the church could become in the public scene if we would simply commit our minds to the study of his truth. Um, I'll give you a quote, a couple of quotes here before we get into, into the text. Brother Lawrence, Christian, I believe he, he lived in the, uh, in the 1600s. He said this, 
in order to know God, we must often think of him. And when we come to love him, we shall then also think of him often. It's this cycle. When we think of him, we love him. When we love him, we think of him more. When we think of him more, we love him more. And it just keeps going. For our heart will be with our treasure. Isn't that true? That our hearts, that our minds, the things that our thoughts often turn to, that's where our treasure is. A.W. Tozer says this, An idol of the mind is as offensive to God as an idol of the hand. Isn't that true? There's also another statement, and I would like to, I don't know exactly who said this. I've heard it a number of times. It has been said that the, that the musician needs the theologian. And the theologian needs the musician. You see, I'm very thankful for, for what Ethan does and for what, you know, many other people who are, who are in the industry, you know, creating God glorifying music, putting it out there to, to, to edify us in the church. Um, but you know, it, my temptation is to hold myself up in my office or in my dorm room to read God's Word, to read these commentaries, and just to become a big egghead. But then when I get in here and we're singing songs that point to the glory of God, and my heart is captivated by how great He is and His love for us, then, you know what, I'm no longer just an egghead. I have a heart too. But that sword cuts both ways. The musician, you understand that our culture is a culture, our Christian culture is a, is a culture of emotion. I would, uh, I would argue to you that we have, um, if we have erred, we have not erred on the side of being too mental. We have gotten wrapped up in emotionalism and uh, perhaps different points in our lives. Hey, I'm, I'm so happy about what's going on in my heart. Well, what's going on in your heart? Well, I don't really know, but I'm happy. That's why I'm thankful for uh, teaching here at, at, at Abner Creek and, and songs that, that go hand in hand there that, that glorify God. You understand that when I come to you and, and I am given these opportunities like tonight uh, where I preach... I was able to handpick this passage. I had the whole Bible, and you know what I just said? I mean, I, of course I prayed about it. It wasn't just some kind of frivolous decision. But I said, you know, I think, I think Romans chapter 8, something that the Lord's really been speaking to me through, I think I would like to preach on that. That's a privilege, that, that's a luxury that our pastor does not afford himself. He goes through the Bible, verse by verse. Chapter by chapter, because he desires that the people here at Abner Creek have the whole counsel of God's word. I'm thankful for that. If we have erred, it has not been on the side of being overly mental. Let's get into our text here. That, that all has been just kind of uh, preliminary stuff. Read with me as, as we kind of go back over uh, verses 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. These are probably the the pivotal statements of this section. Paul uh, makes these claims. He says, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have been set free from the law of sin and death. He takes these statements and he builds on them. He says, because these things are true, then look for this. Because these things are true, then you should exhibit this. And that is uh, what we're going to. Um, discuss tonight verses 3 and 4 say this for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do you understand that God has uh, done a work he did not simply look down on creation have pity and say okay you're good no he actually did the work he sent the son not some uh, heaven Not some heavenly kingdom estate hand. Not some mere servant. He sent the Son, the very second person of the Trinity, to do what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. It says here in the second part of verse 3, By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for the sin, uh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Does it ever make you wonder how wicked, how black, how dirty our sin must have been that God had to kill the Son to make it right? We must have been some pretty sinful old chaps. I know I am. That God took it upon himself to accomplish what we never could should cause us great pause. Scott preached on this this morning. God would have been completely justified had he left us in our hopeless estate. But for the joy set before him. The father sent his very son, no mere servant, and we killed him and we would do it today again if we were given the chance that's how sinful we are and you say greg well how do how do you know that we would do that we're enlightened we live in the 21st century we're smarter than that well no we still sin and we still like it we put christ on the cross every day and we approach it with such a nonchalant attitude Knowing all of this beforehand, knowing that humanity would kill the son, know that we would despise him, know that we would not accept him. God sent Jesus, Hebrews 12 says, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I don't understand that. I don't understand the joy that the father had. It is too much for me to comprehend the fact that he would so love something that is so diametrically opposed to everything that he is. We are wholly sinful and he is wholly holy. And for the joy set before him, he sent his son to take on our wrath and our sin. We must not neglect the fact that this great work only applies to those of us who are saved. Look, look on with me. In verse 4. He did all of this. 
He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Well, who is us? Us are the ones who walk according not to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You understand that there is a world full of people who are not walking according to the spirit. They're walking according to the flesh. They have no Christ. They have no hope because they have no Christ. They need a Savior. And we were once there. We were reminded of this of this deadening truth that, that this gospel, the great things that we have in Christ, the Spirit, that they apply to those who are saved. We were reminded of this truth uh, that that the world... Who is lost, their minds are not set on the spirit because the flesh is all they know. Why is that all they know? Well, it's because they have yet to be, they have yet to have been told and persuaded and loved. And that is the job of the church. There is a uh, world who, uh, to whom Ephesians chapter 2 applies. And it once applied to us. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God... Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated uh, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Friends, if our minds are so set on the spirit and the things of the spirit, then passages like these, like this, should cause us a great grief in our hearts. That there is a world to whom the first part of that Ephesians chapter 2 passage still applies. They are on a path blind, trying to drive their lives down a road, but little do they know they are careening toward uh, down a path that is headed toward none other than the eternal hell of Satan. They have no hope. They have no peace. Truly, though, when we allow our minds to be engaged on the text of the Bible... Passages like the one that I just read, then we are moved to look beyond ourselves. When our minds are engaged on the things of the spirit, when our when our minds are in that place, then our hearts are allowed to move our hands to action. We can then be moved and and be so uh, grieved over the, the state of the loss that, you know what? We, we're going to, we decide that we're going to do something about it. 
we soon understand that our life is a mission trip. Verses 5 and 6, the latter part of 5, read with me. Uh, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. You you understand, Christ came so that we could have life. And, and have it abundantly. And that is so often taken out of context. That is so often twisted to mean that God came to give us some life of privilege. And some life of possession. And some life of uh, constant happiness. 24-7 bliss. But really, what He came is so that we could have the Spirit. And with the Spirit comes life. Why? Not because we drive a Mercedes. But because we have the Spirit of God living in us. And we have Peace. He came to give us that. That we could have relationship with the one true God. For those of us who are in Christ, we are invited to engage our minds. He says the, the life. Uh, the, the, uh, the, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds On the things of the Spirit. We have not been saved for these small reasons. We have not been saved simply to get along in life. We have not been saved merely to be happy. All of these things that I just mentioned. We have been saved so that we can have communion with the one true God. All those other purposes are far too inglorious for an altogether glorious God. He wants us to engage our minds and to uh, be holistic uh, Christians, not just heart Christians. He wants us to be mind Christians as well. This invitation to engage our mind is extended by a loving God, I want to point out. This, This invitation is extended by a loving God who has promised that he will give us everything that we need. To do this with second uh, Peter one three says this his divine his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge the mind through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence it's interesting. Incidentally, this this provision that's well, well, Greg, how do I know God? How do I come to know him? How do I meditate uh, upon his statutes? Well, he's given us his word. It's interesting that the very uh, that this provision that God makes for us, it comes in the very form of God's word. The Bible, you understand that the very thing we must meditate upon with. Our minds. We have been given the scriptures. We have been given the everything that we need for life and godliness. But I am afraid that because of our other fetishes and because of our, our other desires, we have neglected it. Isn't that a shame? This thing of, uh, of meditation, you know, it's kind of far from our modern minds. We, we don't usually talk about meditating on things. Very often, you know, and, and it's, a lot of this is probably because, you know, when I think of meditation, I think of, uh, 
you know, like getting in a dark room and burning some candles and some incense and, you know, having a seance with a couple friends where we try to summon this, you know, higher power. We try to become one with our ourselves or something weird like that. But when I say meditation, what I mean is thinking long and deeply on the things of God's word. We have missed this. Maybe you have uh, gotten to a point in, in your walk with Christ where you read God's word on a regular basis. Fantastic. Maybe you've uh, gone on in your, in your uh, uh, Christian life, in your sanctification, and you have gotten to a place where not only do you have a, uh, a time where you uh, come to God's word and read it daily, but you pray daily. And you do so intentionally. It's part of your life. Fantastic. Um, I wonder, do you meditate? Here are a couple quotes I want to I want to read on meditation. Uh, Richard Baxter, he was a um, he was a pastor a while back. He said this: "Thus, in our meditations, to intermix soliloquy and prayer, sometimes speaking to our own hearts and sometimes to God, is." I apprehend the highest step we can advance to in this heavenly work. Nor should we imagine it will be as well to take up with prayer alone and lay aside meditation, for they are distinct duties and must both of them be performed. We need the one as well as the other, and therefore we shall wrong ourselves by neglecting either. Besides, the mixture of them, like music, will be more engaging as the one serves to put life to the other. And our speaking to ourselves in meditation should go before our speaking to God in prayer. You see, a lot of times, I don't know about you, but um, if I just read God's word, uh, sometimes I try to do this in the morning. and, And I don't know about you, but I'm not as sharp in the morning as I am, you know, maybe later on into the night. But uh, it just kind of goes in one ear and out the other. And I just read it. It's like, okay, how many verses can I get in? You know, but what, what if we took the time to meditate on God's Word, to let it permeate our hearts, and to let it so influence our prayers that we, uh, I believe in a short period of time, could become different people in our, in our prayer lives. John Owen, who was a, um, he was a Puritan, he was actually a, Chaplain to Oliver Cromwell, if you're a history buff, he said this, pray as you think, consciously embrace with your heart every gleam of light and truth that comes to your mind. Thank God for and pray about everything that strikes you powerfully. Here's the deal. We've agreed or maybe you don't agree, but, you know, I, I think so. We have kind of established that the mind side, the intellect side, the thinking side of our Christianity has probably been one of the more neglected ones. Okay, I think we've established that. Isn't it interesting that meditation is equally as neglected as thinking is? Why is that? Because meditation requires us engaging our minds and actually thinking about it. Actually letting ourselves marinate on the great truths of Scripture. Thomas Manton, another Puritan guy, said this. Meditation 
is a middle sort of duty between the word, Bible intake, and, and prayer. It has respect to both. The word feeds meditation, and meditation feeds prayer. And by the way, I'm taking all the fetus and turning them into feeds. Just <laughs> Anyway, the word feedeth meditation, and meditation feedeth prayer. These duties must always go hand in hand. Meditation must follow hearing and precede prayer. Here it comes. To hear and not to meditate is unfruitful. We may hear and hear, but it is like putting a thing into a bag with holes. It is rashness to pray and not to meditate. What we take in by the word, we digest by meditation and let out by prayer. These three duties must be ordered that one may not jostle out the other. Men are barren, dry, and sapless for their prayers because they don't exercise themselves in holy thoughts. Apparently, Paul wasn't the only one who thought that the Christian mind had a place in our lives. Friends, here's the deal as I, as I kind of wind down here and I feel like I've had trouble gathering my thoughts and, and putting them before you, but I hope that perhaps you've understood some of what I've been trying to say. When we do take God up, when we buy into what He says, and when we meditate on His Word, it is my conviction that uh, he will allow us to see something that we have not seen before. When we meditate on his word, when we consider his word more valuable than the, these things, the hours on Facebook or hours in front of the television or hours uh, with this certain hobby, God, I believe, will grant us the chance to see how much more he has for us. When we take God's word and think carefully upon it and consider what implications it bears for our life uh, and we pray upon these things, I believe that we will perhaps catch a glimpse into his majesty and decide, you know what, I don't want anything else. I told the students this last week something that the Lord had, had convicted me of, and I heard it from a very, very Solid Bible preacher. I don't take credit for this. But he said that if Christ is just your number one, you're still not giving him enough. Because to say that Christ is your number one implies that there is a two and a three and a four. Instead of Christ just being a couple clicks above our favorite hobby, or instead of Christ being just a couple clicks above uh, our, our family, what if Christ was everything? What if He was the lens through which we perceived everything else, that we no longer uh, tried to, to put up with, with ordering our priorities and just keeping Jesus just a step above everything else, just so that we could say that He's our number one? What if He was our everything? Don't let Christ just be your number one. I believe 
that when we engage our minds, that when we allow our mind to be set on the things of the Spirit, when we make a willful decision that, God, I want to be a mental Christian, not just a heart Christian, or not just a one-day-of-the-week Christian, we will see that this God thing is a lot more, uh, is a lot larger than our 21st century postmodern Watered-down Christianity says that it is. God is far greater. And I think that it is like this. I'll give you a little parable. It is like we have been placed in a room. And that room has a window. And we can choose one or two things. We can choose either to stare at the wall or to climb up and look out the window. And see what else there is in this world. You see, we've been given just a, you know, the scripture says that we, we see through a, a glass dimly. We, we, we don't, we are finite. We don't have everything. We don't uh, understand everything that there is. But we've been given a window and that window is called the word of God. And I think sometimes we have decided that we would rather stare at the wall than look out the window. We would rather look at all the, the different stones that the, that the wall is made of and give them names and, and you know, uh, make up all of these games with them and try to see how much enjoyment we can get out of staring at the wall when there is a vast treasure trove more in the Word of God. Would we just look through it? We would see that God is more than we think he is, we would see that he is altogether good and altogether just and altogether holy. The computer, our addiction, the television will have a smaller tug on our desires, for we have seen that there is more. I fear that the reason we don't see how much more God has is because we simply won't look. I'm going to close in just a moment. And I'm going to give you a a couple words here. They're Paul's words. And I want these words to be our catalyst. I want these words to be our encouragement. Here they are. For the mind... That is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Do those words hit you as hard as they hit me? I hope they do. I want to say them again. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Here's the, here's the reality. If you are in Christ, you have the mind of the Spirit. But that doesn't mean that our choice has been eliminated. That doesn't mean that we no longer struggle with the flesh. We still war 
And we still make choices. And many times those choices are for the the flesh instead of for the spirit. My encouragement to you is engage your mind. Look toward the the spirit of God because here's the grim reality. Paul says here that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God and does not submit to God's law. And it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. As long as our minds, as long as we allow our minds to go headlong toward the flesh, to be concerned with these temporal things, these things that don't matter, as long as we grant that tacit approval, yes, mind, go on. You just have you three or four hours in front of the television doing nothing eternally significant. As long as we give that the checkbox and say that that is okay when there is a vast treasure trove more, what we are saying is, is that we would rather indulge our fetishes than please God. Now, you understand there's nothing inherently wrong about the television. There are a couple of television shows that I love to watch. But I know that few of those television shows... Grant me anything that is eternally significant. Few of my hobbies. I love playing golf. Everybody, all the men in my family play golf. I love to play golf. I think it's good to play golf. I think it's good to get out there and everything. But if that becomes an idol, if I spend an inordinate amount of time, there is nothing, as a matter, you know, there is nothing spiritually, eternally significant about playing golf. As a matter of fact, some of you who play golf would say, you know what, it takes me a lot closer to Satan than it does God anyway. Without our minds being submitted to the Spirit of God, we can't please Him. We can't fulfill our very purpose in life. Pleasing God. Glorifying Him. Though you don't need to have a Ph.D. to please God. You don't have to be some brainiac with a, you know, all kinds of degrees on your wall. You do need to have a mind that is submitted to the Holy Spirit. So I would encourage you, do whatever you must. Cut off whatever you must. Run away from whatever you must so that you can have a mind that is arrested by the Spirit of God. That is my encouragement. And I pray that you would hold me accountable to do the same. Pray with me. Lord, you are good. And I am not. Because of this, I ask that your spirit pervade my life. Permeate every fiber of my being. Because I cannot discharge my duties without that equipping pray that for every person in this room, Lord, for the church at Abner Creek, for the, for the universal church around the world, that we would decide that we don't want to be compartmentalized Christians. We want to be holistic Christians, Christians who value the heart as well as the mind. And Lord, the whole purpose is so that we can be better equipped to share the gospel, so that we can better glorify you. 
Would you give us the wherewithal to do this? Would you give us the wisdom to know how to go about this great feat? Would you help us to turn first and foremost to your word? Would you help us to not be content with looking at the stones? But help us, Lord, to see that there is a world out there that we must come to know. And that world is called the Holy Bible. Pray, Lord, that we would no longer be satisfied with the kiddie pool, but we would desire the deep end. Pray for the persecuted church. Lord, the sweet people in different corners of the world who are believing on you through much affliction. They... Live in fear, but they also live in hope, and that hope is Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would encourage them. In your name we pray. Amen. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.